Coming to you from Prince George, British Columbia, via the series of tubes, this is Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker, proudly canceled by CFIS 93.1 FM and CFUR 88.7. We have been banned from the airwaves up here in Prince George, but we're still speaking the truth loud and clear. from somewhere in the Hawaiian archipelago is uh, Aaron Weir, who has the distinction of being the last NDP member of parliament the people of Saskatchewan sent to Ottawa. Uh, so we're drinking uh, rum and Cokes here uh, as, our, as our cocktail this evening, as suggested by Aaron. And um, welcome to the show. Well, great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. I thought you were going to say I was the last CCF uh, MP, but uh, um, it, it is true that no new Democrats have uh, been elected since that 2015 uh, campaign either. Yeah, now the story of your of your service as a CCF MP is something that we're going to get to, obviously. But um, I wanted to... Uh, I mean, first of all, I was I really watched your riding on election night. It was one of the few places that where the NDP actually gained under Tom Mulcair's leadership. So before we get into the bad stuff that happened later, let's focus for a moment on the good stuff. How what were the things that you did to take that seat in Regina off the Tories and deliver it when the NDP was taking a pasting in the rest of the country? Well, excellent question. And as I'm sure you know, having been active in politics, uh, you know, for many years and decades, uh, there's a lot of variables that are outside of the candidate's control. So one thing I would certainly point to was the redistribution of federal riding boundaries in Saskatchewan. Previously, Regina and Saskatoon had both been divided up into these rural urban split ridings that really benefited the Conservatives. Uh, prior to the 2015 campaign, uh, some purely urban constituencies, including Regina Louvan, uh, were created. So that was a more level uh, playing field uh, for non-conservatives uh, to seek election. Uh, so that was part of the story. Another part of the story in 2015 was that there was a reaction against uh, the Harper government uh, across the country. Most places that probably helped uh, the Liberals. Um, in Saskatchewan, where the Liberals uh, were a little bit weaker, um, it helped the NDP, or at least it allowed new Democratic candidates to make a plausible case that the way to defeat the Conservatives and to achieve progressive representation uh, in Ottawa was by voting uh, for us. 
And in order to do that, um, our campaign uh, mobilized more than 900 volunteers. We had people out there uh, dropping off literature, uh, knocking on doors, talking to people uh, for months uh, before the election. Uh, I knocked on something like 25,000 doors myself uh, during that campaign. Uh, we put up uh, you know, something like 3,000 signs across the constituency. Um, so it was a very, uh, you know, labor and volunteer intensive uh, ground campaign. And as you probably know, uh, we didn't win by much. Uh, it was 132 votes and that went to a judicial recount. So um, I guess the silver lining was in a sense I got to win twice, uh, but by very narrow margins. So, and I mean, it's always, it's always good to talk to a politician who narrates themselves out of the story. I, uh, I appreciate that, that, um, yeah, there was great volunteer mobilization, uh, but that the boundaries made a big difference. Now, I worked on um, the electoral boundaries um, for the New Democratic Party during the uh, redistribution that preceded the 2004 election. Mm -hmm. And I remember that uh, I and most people who were doing strategy for the party um, saw the rural-urban or the urban seats, as um, people called them, as a major handicap. But to my surprise, um, Lorne Nystrom and uh, other sort of older Saskatchewan NDP folks fought to keep those hybrid rural urban seats. And I think this sort of speaks to this shift, right, that took place in the, uh, you know, late 20th century of the, of not just the NDP, but of people who understand themselves to be progressive or left-wing or whatever those terms mean, um, people increasingly seemed to write off the possibilities of persuading large numbers of rural voters. And it was only sort of older folks like Nystrom who sort of held on to that dream, no matter how badly it actually screwed up his efforts to get back into the House of Commons. And I wondered, and this I think is really like the, the big issue I'd like us to tackle from various angles. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, that we made the right choice, first of all, in going, okay, we have a new base, it's not rural. Um, let's stop trying to persuade these rural constituencies and instead focus on where people seem more persuadable. Um, was that a thing that um, the left had to do? Was it an advisable thing to do? Should we have done it? Well, I don't think it ever makes sense to give up on persuading people. I mean, I think that the left needs to try to persuade everyone that it can persuade. And, and certainly um, the NDP needs to try to connect uh, with rural Canadians. I mean, certainly... Uh, if the NDP is ever to get elected again as a provincial government in Saskatchewan, that would require winning at least some rural constituencies because uh, it's a predominantly uh, rural province. Um, having said that, uh, there, there was a fairly deep rural-urban split in Saskatchewan uh, for quite a while. I mean, it goes back... Uh, at least uh, to the 1990s. 
And election after election, there was this dynamic where uh, the NDP either was shut out of rural Saskatchewan or was able to hold on to only a couple of seats. So, you know, I, I, I don't think it was that party strategists just flippantly decided to write off rural Saskatchewan. I think it was a kind of a grudging response to uh, some pretty punishing election results in, in rural Saskatchewan. And I, I don't know that anyone really came up with the magic formula to, to turn that around. So um, now there are, it is important to credit that there are rural constituencies that the New Democrats retain, and they tend to be constituencies um, with very, relative to the rest of Canada, high Indigenous populations. It seems as though the, I mean, the Northern Saskatchewan riding that, uh, that the NDP used to hold, um, Nikki Ashton's seat in Northern Manitoba, Charlie Angus's seat, etc. Um, you know, our own Skeena riding in BC. Um, so it seems like it's specifically, um, uh, it's, it's non-Indigenous, rural Canadians who, and it's not just in Saskatchewan, of course, who have turned away from the left. Um, what do you think sort of the, the big political and cultural factors are to explain this shift that begins in the 90s and continues up to the present day? Yeah, well, that's maybe the kind of million dollar question. And I, I would, first of all, agree with your analysis of some of the northern ridings. And I mean, northern Saskatchewan is so different from the rest of the province. We don't even really tend to refer to it as rural. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it is remote and sparsely populated and, and so rural in that sense. But it, it's so uh, different than the rest of the province. Uh you know, when we talk about rural Saskatchewan politically, we tend not to even really refer to the the, the North. Um, in in terms of uh, you know what's happened politically in rural Canada, I mean, there's the whole "what's the matter with Kansas" thesis that comes from the United States uh, that you know conservative parties and movements have succeeded in reframing politics away from um, economic issues where there might have been uh, some, some common interests between, um, you know, farmers and, you know, rural employees and, and urban workers. And that was kind of the uh, basis of the, the CCF coalition uh, to begin with, uh, you know, and has instead framed politics more in terms of social or, or, or cultural issues. So, um, you know, one issue that really hurt uh, New Democrats in Saskatchewan, at, especially at the federal level, uh, was gun control. And I remember encountering that uh, election uh, after election that, um, you know, people, uh, well, in, in, in Regina, but I, I would say even more strongly in rural areas uh, tended to be opposed to the long gun registry. And it wasn't even necessarily about uh, the ins and outs of that program, although certainly it was a, a poorly managed uh, program. Uh, but it was more a sense that this gun control policy uh, was kind of dismissive of hunting and of, of the rural uh, way of life. Um, 
you know, there, there are, of course, other uh, kind of socially conservative issues that uh, conservative parties have, have deployed that, that obviously tend to have played better in rural areas than, than urban areas. So I would say that's um, one theory of what happened. And I, I think potentially some of that social conservatism goes back uh, a long time. I mean, I've heard stories about focus groups that the Saskatchewan NDP conducted in the 1970s uh, in rural areas where they spoke to people who were voting NDP because you know, their, their, their father voted for Tommy Douglas. But when you ask them questions about where they stood on particular issues, they were actually uh, fairly right wing. And I, I think over time, a lot of those people evidently stopped voting NDP on the strength of their ancestors having voted for Tommy Douglas and maybe started uh, voting more in accordance with some of the beliefs that, that were you know, being expressed in those focus groups decades ago. So um, uh, now one of the things that um, uh, when I first got involved in doing left-wing politics and organizing, um, on the one hand, I was associated with Sven Robinson. He was like my guy when I was first finding my feet in everything. And um, so he was associated, obviously, with a very sort of, um, well, he was not a social conservative and he was not a rural person. But um, in the 1980s, I remember us thinking of social conservatives from rural areas as part of our coalition that we might that the idea was that we had this big tent and in much the way that the u.s democratic party makes accommodations for latino and black social conservatives to sure. exist yep. in their party mm -hmm. um and it seems that that um and I, i'm reminded of the the whipped gay marriage vote um, mm -hmm. yep. that launched Nikki Ashton's political career, yes. really, yes. because yep. um, um, we had Bev Desjardins, who was a social conservative New Democrat, like Yvonne yep. Godin from Acadie Bathurst, right? There were still people in Jack Layton's caucus who were social conservatives. And um, especially because I'm wrestling with this in my own life, because I'm now in a position where I have to form different coalitions and I work with social conservatives again. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that, uh, that being a social conservative within um, a left party has become unimaginable. It's become inconceivable that a person would show up because of your position on the North American Free Trade Agreement or the minimum wage or some really material thing, maybe even their opposition to pipelines. And if they hold social conservative views, what I've seen from both the Greens and the New Democrats is a real effort to purge social conservatives from their coalition. It seems kind of counterproductive that there are these votes that are needed and there's this growing sense that we shouldn't accept votes if they come from people who are somehow socially or morally tainted as impure and so 
I, I, I think one of the questions we have to wrestle with is there are push factors and pull factors, right? There are the ways that conservative parties have been successful at moving more socially conservative, more rural voters to them. But then there's the question of what are we doing to actually push those voters in their direction? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in your experience, um, being a new Democrat in Saskatchewan, where you're trying to you know, put the big orange tent back together, um, what, um, what was, were there still social conservatives active in the organization and, and, and what was their reception? How did they handle being in a party that was increasingly defined by urban social issues? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I, I do think it would be correct to say that the Saskatchewan NDP uh, was more inclusive of social conservatives than the NDP in some other parts of the country. And, and I was always very comfortable with that. I mean, my background is, is as an economist, I tend to see politics in economic terms. Uh, to me, the big right-left divide is on the kind of material issues that you mentioned, a progressive tax system, uh, a comprehensive welfare state, workers' rights. Those are the things that I think we should be fighting for uh, from the left. And, you know, if socially conservative people um, you know, want to fight for those same goals, then I'm happy to welcome them uh, as allies. Um, and, and I think you're also correct to say uh, that maybe that isn't uh, widespread on the left, or at least uh, in certain political parties uh, on the left. There, there, there maybe has been uh, some attempt to, um, you know, exclude those people. I, I think, as you say, to the detriment of uh, left-wing political parties. It's certainly shrunk uh, the voting coalition. We started out by kind of framing this in rural-urban terms, but I actually think it's gotten to the point where um, this kind of focus on, um, you know, identity politics, for perhaps lack of a better term, uh, in the federal NDP has actually excluded lots of working class people in in cities as well. I mean, in uh, in, in urban areas. So I don't think it's just a, a rural urban divide anymore. Right. It. Um, yeah, no, I think it is a bigger cultural divide. Um, uh, it. Um, it does. It does seem striking. I was a big fan of Jack Layton when he first <laughs> saw the NDP leadership. Um, you know, because I was a Sven Robinson fan and I was referred to this guy and I was shocked after the 2004 election that uh, Leighton walked back our opposition to NAFTA. Um, And I wanted to specifically go into these investor rights treaties uh, because of the of the perspective that you bring. Right. Um, Jack Layton, I think, in many ways, presaged the left's um, incoherence on Brexit by deciding that NAFTA was that the movement of money across borders unfettered was somehow associated with like no one is illegal, that like Mm. somehow if we love immigrants, um, we should uh, we should sign investor rights treaties to permit massive foreign ownership and the free movement of capital across international borders. 
And so that by the time really we get to the Brexit uh, campaign and Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn gets all these votes in the 2017 UK election for policies that uh, the Maastricht Treaty prohibits, sure. right? There is 80% of Jeremy Corbyn's platform could not have been implemented without leaving the European Union. And yet Corbyn had the campaign to remain in the union to not appear racist. And it's of course in this time that we see Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and Nigel Farage taking this new step of not just being the people who identify with rural voters culturally, mm -hmm. but being people who say to industrial workers, these deals that have been destroying your wages and working conditions, that have been immiserating you and making you lose your jobs and shipping your jobs overseas, we are now the only people who stand against those things. And Don Davies is a dear friend of mine. I, he is one mm -hmm. of the people I, I, whenever I have friends in Vancouver Kingsway, I just tell them to vote for Don. He's so respectful of the party's base, but I remain bewildered by his work on this file. And I'm wondering how has it got to the point where it is the so-called left who are the proponents of investor rights and the proponents of the free movement of capital across borders? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, it's certainly a, a, a tremendous uh, political shift. In fairness to Leighton, I think he always did oppose the investor rights provisions of NAFTA and other free trade deals. He, he may, though, as you say, have, have walked back um, the party's pledge to pull out of NAFTA. Um, I, I don't think he ever embraced uh, the investor rights provisions but, but shifting over uh, to Europe, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I worked in Brussels for a year for the International uh, Trade Union Confederation. That was around the time of kind of the Euro crisis in 2010, 2011. And uh, so I had a bit of a front row seat uh, for, for some of that. And, and my sense of it is that social democratic parties in Europe had obviously played a huge and successful role in establishing the European Union and its institutions, and therefore felt very defensive of those institutions, even when those institutions became quite neoliberal in terms of their political and policy uh, orientation. So um, in the kind of mainstream social democratic parties in Europe, it became almost taboo to, to critique uh, the EU or even specific uh, EU institutions. And yet there clearly were problems with those institutions. And, and it was really the populist right was the only movement kind of saying the emperor has no clothes. Uh, that, that was the only part of the political spectrum that, that was, you know, making criticisms of uh, those EU institutions. So I, I think that's, um, maybe at least part of what what happened there uh, in terms of the you know the right kind of emerging as um, the opposition uh, to neoliberal uh, free trade you know agreements and institutions um, 
of, of course, uh, the, the history here in Canada is, is a little bit different. And of course, if we were talking about the United States, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be talking about, uh, you know, Trump and, and all of that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so you brought up the what's wrong with Kansas uh, piece, you know, that looked at, right, a rural producerist um, welfare state that turned against welfare states. Uh, and I do think that Saskatchewan has certainly followed that path in a lot of ways, uh, that if you look at the geography of, of all this, there's a lot of similarity. But um, I guess one of the questions is, I've really seen what I, I refer to as the sort of John Stewartization of the Canadian left, that the Canadian left, much as it points fingers at Fox News and the purchase it has on the Canadian right today, it's really the Canadian left that moved to American cable TV as its main sort of source of moral and intellectual authority, even before the Canadian right started watching Fox News and the numbers that they do, that there seems to have been this embrace, uh, particularly during the Obama years, of American liberalism as the core value of the Canadian left. And I'm curious about, first of all, your, your sense of whether that's how, that's how your experience went, but also about how, what are the possibilities of Canada to disentangle itself from this larger Anglo-American discourse and have Canadian conversations about politics at all? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because obviously for many decades, it was the left in Canada that was really committed to kind of Canadian nationalism and this uh, independence from, from the United States. And I think you're right to say that um, in recent years, um, the NDP certainly has begun kind of taking its cues from the U.S. Democratic Party. I mean, often the issues or themes uh, that the NDP raises federally are kind of the same ones that the U.S. Democrats are, are raising. And it, it goes beyond just issues and themes to sometimes specific um, incidents. I mean, one of the last tweets I remember from Jagmeet Singh was kind of emoting about uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, verdict. And I mean, whatever you think about uh, that case and, and the verdict, I mean, it, it was certainly- Why is this his business? Court yes. I yeah, mean, yes, kind of, we're kind of a vassal state of the greatest empire the world has ever known, and it's collapsing in an embarrassing way next to us and will probably take us down with it. But it still is extraordinary to have the leader of the fourth party in the Canadian parliament feeling that an American judicial verdict is um, something that his supporters need to hear about. Uh, now, obviously, this, this opens an opportunity to talk about a little bit of you know, you and I have had different painful experiences uh, yeah. of our relationship with the movement we thought was our movement. Um, mm -hmm. And yours have been on a certainly larger and more unpleasant scale than my own. But I want to, I mean, essentially, as I understand it, when you were an NDP caucus member, a complaint was made against you. An investigation took place. You were exonerated. And then 
Jagmeet Singh stated that you hadn't been exonerated and then you were booted from caucus for disagreeing with him. Is that is that the story? Have I missed details? Um, yeah, well, there's, of course, many levels of detail we could get into, um, maybe a couple points. First, it didn't start with a specific complaint or allegation. I had put my name forward for the position of federal NDP caucus chair, and I kind of emailed caucus members to make my pitch. And another MP, Christine Moore, kind of reply all to the email uh, saying, you know, I've heard some things about Aaron Weir, you know, that he might have been involved in harassing behavior. I wouldn't feel comfortable with him being caucus chair. So not really saying that I'd done anything to her, just kind of that she'd, she'd heard things. And so I think that, that Singh, you know, was genuinely unsure what to make of it or how to deal with it. So he ended up announcing that um, there'd be an investigation of um, this suggestion. Uh, and in announcing the investigation, of course, you know, he quoted all of these themes about believing survivors and, and everything. And it, at that point, it, it wasn't really clear, you know, survivors of what, but having announced this investigation, um, they needed something to investigate. So um, Singh's office uh, emailed about 250 federal NDP staff people right across the country asking if anyone had any complaints. And of course, um, I think Moore had an incentive at that point to make sure that there, there would be some and there were um, other MPs who recently had um, contested the leadership against Singh who, you know, may have had it the day, um, you know, some, there were some uh, complaints but they were really of, of an extremely uh, minor nature, you know, complaints that I'd, um, you know, had an argument with a, a staff person from the leader's office or that I'd, um, you know, spoken to people at social events for, for longer than they uh, cared to speak with me. So, you know, certainly things that could be taken as a learning experience or as, as, as useful feedback, um, but, you know, nothing close to what most Canadians would consider harassment. And I, I think that's why you perhaps interpreted the investigation as an, ex as an exoneration. In fact, the investigator was, was quite activist and, and um, took a very, you know, broad view of what might be harassment and ended up concluding that, you know, if you added all the complaints together, they might reach the lower end of a kind of spectrum of, of harassment. Um, so I suppose, you know, from that perspective, I was, uh, you know, I was found guilty. But again, the, you know, the big question was, was, was guilty of what? Um, and yeah, indeed, one of one of the complainants, uh, you know, went to the media. Um, you know, I went to Singh's office to see what the plan was to deal with this. There wasn't one. So ultimately, I uh, felt obliged to, you know, respond. And then I guess it was for the, the, the sin of uh, coming to my own defense that I was uh, kicked out of, uh, of caucus. Although, I mean, Singh's version of why he kicked me out of caucus kind of changed uh, a bit over time as well. Yeah, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't make head or tail of it, honestly. And of course, um, I, I have absolutely no idea of, I, I think we live in a bizarre subcultural system 
um, that is governed by a whole new theory of honor shame dynamics that I refer mm-hmm. to as identitarianism. It comes back to a lot of this identity politics stuff because um, the thing is, like, why are people writing reports about MPs with quirky personalities? Like, I assume that that was a, a necessary qualification to attain the office. I, I, uh, I had no idea. I mean, we've now moved to a world where there are actually incredibly boring members of parliament all over the place. And this, this seems sort of sad to me. But, um, you know, sort of, I, I feel like we, we have such rapidly moving goalposts around what does and does not constitute harassment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've experienced all kinds of textbook harassment in the past year, right? People sure. going after my partner, people filing anonymous reports at my volunteer gig, um, people getting their grandmothers to sign victim impact statements about a bad lecture I delivered. Um, and I, I'm sort of at sea. I, I feel like well, surely we all have pretty quirky personal styles. God knows I sure wanted to get away from Alexa McDonough after a while of talking to her when she was the leader. Um, but it wouldn't have occurred to me that Alexa McDonough had in some way injured me by doing this. And so it seems like we have a shifting politics of personal injury where everything is violence now, right? If you forget someone's name, it's violence. You've actually attempted to murder them. Um, if if you uh, forget their name or or how they prefer to be talked about when they're not even there, um, that's another way of accidentally murdering somebody. Um, and it seems like we have all of these opportunities for offense taking that mm-hmm. are unprecedented. And I've studied like the the colonial Spanish empire. And I don't think we've seen um, really in like 250 years, the sort of level of atavistic offense politics in on this continent where, um, you know, and I also have friends who are beaten in the street with impunity. Uh, People can beat them in the street with impunity because oh, they've accidentally attempted to murder someone by calling them by the wrong name. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, so I guess what I'm asking here is how much do you think that our politics of identity and sensitivity, how are they impacting the left and what can we do to reduce that impact? Because it seems like at the current level of impact, it's almost impossible to fashion a broad coalition. I think that's a very good insight. I mean, I think that for a long time, there were some identity politics, uh, you know, somewhere in the broader left coalition. And, And even those of us who maybe didn't identify with those identity politics, just kind of, you know, accepted them as uh, part of the coalition. Um, but, but I think you're right that they've kind of taken over, uh, you know, at the expense of, um, 
material issues, um, you know, environmental issues, um, a, a lot of the, the kind of bread and butter things that I think we should be uh, trying to accomplish. Um, so I'm not, you know, completely sure what the solution is other than that I do think it's important for people uh, to speak out and to question this stuff. And I, I mean, I applaud you for, for doing that uh, on your blog and, and elsewhere, and at least, you know, asking, you know, some of these questions about, you know, you know what, what, what is this, um, you know, kind of focus on identity politics uh, all about? Yeah, so I, I do think it, it's a significant conundrum. And I, I think one of the things that we've been doing, we materialists have been doing, is we've been trying to kick um, the can down the road um, that we're um, uh, that we're going. Well, these material issues are really important. We don't want to mm -hmm. fall into the identitarian trap by like fighting with identity politics people about identity yep. politics. So we're going to pretend this isn't happening. Yes, and it seems to me that the refusal to engage has not produced the effects we had hoped that we may actually need some kind of new plan because the last plan doesn't seem to be heading in the right direction now this gets me to this interesting thing that you did after um you were pushed out of the ndp caucus which was to sit as a ccfer so when you chose to take up the original name of the party, the original program of the party from the Great Depression era, from the last time we had a lot of progressives who were really into eugenics, uh, who saw that as part of their identity politics, you know, including the esteemed Tommy Douglas himself, mm -hmm. right? I, uh, it's, it shouldn't wholly surprise us that our parties are now strongly animated by the desire to sterilize the mentally handicapped again. So we have, um, so it seems like that, that didn't work. And one of the things that really interested me during your time as a CCF MP was that I, I had hoped you would seek re-election under the banner that there might even be a party, that sort of thing. What were you trying to embody during your time saying, I'm the only CCFer in parliament. What were the kinds of things you were trying to put together for a different culture of the left? Sure, well, I don't know if my ambitions were, you know, quite uh, that broad, uh, but essentially the context, as you say, was that I was uh, ejected from the federal NDP caucus, but of course, you know, I still very much believed in progressive taxation, a comprehensive welfare state, workers' rights, crown corporations. So identifying myself as a CCF MP in parliament was a way of uh, signaling that uh, continued commitment to progressive positions on uh, material issues. It was also a way, of course, of highlighting um, the fact that I was speaking for Saskatchewan. I mean, the, the CCF technically was founded at a convention in Calgary, but I think people very much regard Saskatchewan as the birthplace of the CCF. Uh, you know, whether you think about the Regina Manifesto or uh, the, the Douglas government being the first CCF government. Um, so it was, it was a way of, of really signaling my kind of, uh, you know, ideological 
uh, perspective as well as the region uh, that, that I was representing. And it seemed to go over extremely well uh, in Regina. People, you know, really liked the idea of having a CCF MP uh, again. And I, I think it fit well with the kind of politics and the kind of issues that I brought forward in Parliament. But I mean, admittedly, it was never really um, an organizational attempt to set up a new party uh, or anything like that. Um, and I mean, we could, I, I suppose we could, we could talk more about that, but one point I'd make, at least in terms of uh, my own constituency of Regina Louvan is that, um, you know, the Conservatives are, are very strong there. I mean, I only won by 132 votes. So had I, um, you know, run for re-election under the CCF banner, in 2019 and you know the federal NDP had, had run someone else under that banner um, you know it, it, it only would have helped uh, the conservatives to, to win the seat which I mean they did anyway against uh, the NDP but I had no interest in 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 you know assisting them in doing so uh, so yeah I, 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 I simply uh, bowed out and I mean I posted a statement on uh, on my website, uh, AaronWeir.ca slash election 2019, that's still there if people wanna read that in, in more detail in terms of my rationale for, for, for not running under the CCF banner. So uh, here in, um, in British Columbia, um, there's of course a, a provincial government that is finally rivaling the Notley government in uh, completely selling out any vestige of social democracy. Um, and there are various people talking, some people talk about the need to, um, you know, get behind Dimitri Lascaris and his movement and turn the Greens into a socialist party. Um, people are still talking about, I'm sure it looks like the, um, you know, the uh, Klein-Lewis lineage is going to do a dumbed-down version of the Justin Trudeau thing. I noticed that Avi Lewis declared his candidacy in that unwinnable provincial seat, a uh, federal seat, that's coterminous mm -hmm. with a highly winnable provincial seat, um, sure. the day after Stephen Lewis's uh, cancer was diagnosed as terminal. Mm -hmm. So I imagine we're going to have some sort of internal NDP insurgency launched from Stephen Lewis's funeral, we have a, these movements within the Greens to make the Greens into a social democratic party. Harold Steves, the, uh, one of the last two surviving members of the Barrett government's cabinet, um, is favoring the creation of a second eco-socialist party uh, in BC following the total annihilation of the one uh, I briefly led. Um, and so we have people talking about entryism, we have people talking about vanguardism, we have all of this stuff um, from the warm climes of Hawaii, slipping your, sipping your Cuba Libre. Um, for people who are trying to make a choice about, people who haven't given up on electoral politics, right? but are not obsessed with identity and are focused on questions of economic and environmental justice. What do you think the smart strategic move is for Canadians? Well, it's a really tough question. And I, I suppose in our first past the post system, the answer might be a little bit different in different uh, ridings. 
Um, you know, I, I certainly, you know, know lots of people who are uh, still very much involved uh, in the federal NDP. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Don Davies. So certainly there are uh, some MPs there who are uh, doing good work on uh, important issues. I think it's maybe also worth noting that the uh, Justin Trudeau liberal government has been fairly social democratic uh, on a lot of issues. I mean, um, we were talking about the 2015 election. I'm not sure if the NDP had won under Tom Mulcair that that government would have been uh, significantly to the left of, of the, the Trudeau government that we had. It's obviously a hypothetical uh, question. Um, but certainly the Trudeau government has been well to the left of, say, the Chrétien-Martin liberals on uh, material uh, issues. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there's also, you know, the Green Party, which is viable in a few ridings. Another party we haven't mentioned is the Bloc Québécois, which um, is in many ways a kind of social democratic or labor party that has actually been somewhat immune from these Anglo-American identity politics, as you oh, described absolutely, them. absolutely. No, I, I don't know. I mean, if I lived in Quebec, all my political questions would be very easily answered. <laughs> I'd be a card-carrying member of Solidale. I'd vote block in federal elections because you know, I mean, the only reason English Canada even has a welfare state is we imprisoned these Quebecers inside <laughs> our country and uh, they've exerted a positive influence on us. But uh, yeah, I think if we're stuck in the language, because I'm, I'm, I can't learn other spoken languages. Uh, so if we're stuck inside English, uh, obviously there's the chance to vote Bloc Quebecois in West Montreal, but if people are thinking about organizing, there's another model. And I just on the block, I mean, the other yeah, point yeah. I was going to make was that while it's immune from what we've maybe described as Anglo-American identity politics, I mean, it has its own identity politics of Quebec nationalism, which, of course, uh, I don't think either of us are, are part of. So it's not it's not just uh, language. I mean, I can you know, I can speak yeah, French. Yeah. Uh, pretty well, but it's it's it, it's also this other form of identity politics, which I don't think we need to get into. But but uh, um, you know, just to make that point about the block. But but sorry to interrupt and carry on. Oh no no no, I, there's no interrupting here. This is all good. And yeah, I do think there's a there's a very interesting conversation to be had about um, you know what the what is permitted within Quebec and and what yeah. the discourse is around around questions of identity. But um, uh, Derek O'Keefe, a uh, longtime uh, anti-war activist uh, in Vancouver, narrowly lost a city council bid uh, in the last electoral cycle there, mm -hmm. um, created this organization, Democratic Socialists of Vancouver, mm -hmm. which attempts to deploy internally within multiple parties. So the DSV, they're, they're trying to do something, I think, a little like the DSA in the United States. And so they publicly endorse NDP and Green candidates. They sometimes flirt with other parties. They have members across multiple parties. And I'm wondering if, if we're moving into an era where pretty much all politics is entryism. 
that all of the significant politics that's going on is actually because the parties are so undemocratic, because they're so leader centric, because they're so highly controlled, it seems like we're kind of chasing actual politics out of the party system. Yeah, that, that's a very uh, interesting point. I mean, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Sven Robinson, who, of course, in his day was quite, you know, outspoken and would, you know, buck the party line on all kinds of uh, issues. And, I mean, MPs nowadays, uh, you know, get kicked out of caucus for doing, you know, kind of half of, of what he did. So uh, you're right, I think that it's become much more centralized and that, you um, doing anything interesting in politics, you know, might almost involve some sort of entryism against the party leadership, or it could involve political activity um, in jurisdictions where there isn't a party system. So, I mean, for example, I note that you're uh, running for school board in uh, Prince George, uh, and, you know, you've, you've mentioned mm-hmm. other municipal campaigns. So there are these environments where um, you know, you don't necessarily need to be part of a political party to uh, potentially get elected and, and make a difference. And I, I certainly wish you well on that. Well, I really appreciate that. Um, so now you, um, do you see yourself ever going back into a legislature after the experience that you had? Well, I'm open to all sorts of possibilities, but I suppose what I would uh reiterate is that there's just so many variables that are outside of uh, anyone's person's control uh, to become a federal MP. I mean, you need to um, you know, have a riding where you think you can get elected. You need to have a political party uh, in that riding where you can win the nomination. You have to be able to think that you can get along uh, or at least survive the leadership of, of that political party. Um, so a lot of things would have to come into alignment, I, I think, for it to be, um, you know, viable or appealing for me to, again, uh, uh, seek election. But, um, you know, any, anything's possible. I mean, at, at, at this point, I, I find myself a bit politically homeless in the way that you uh, described, um, you know, very much a, a social democrat or a democratic uh, socialist on those kind of core uh, material questions, uh, but not at all part of the kind of identity politics that, um, well, both the NDP and the Liberals, and I, I suppose perhaps the Green Party to some extent have embraced. Uh, yeah, no, the Green Party is in with both feet there. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> so obviously, like we're having fun having this conversation, yeah. um, you remain a political man. And so I want to spend a few minutes before we we ring off uh, talking about what your small p politics projects have been uh, the past couple of years since you've been out of parliament. Yeah, excellent question. Well, I've certainly continued to write opinion editorials in various uh, Canadian newspapers. Uh, I I think probably about half of the uh, newspaper commentaries I've written since leaving parliament have been about monetary policy and the Bank of Canada mandate, which of course is up for renewal this year, which basically means this month. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see what the federal government does with that. I've been advocating that rather than um, fixating solely on inflation, the central bank should also have a mandate uh, to create jobs and try to achieve uh, a maximum 
uh, level of employment. Um, so that, that's, that's been one focus just in terms of research and writing and, and advocacy. Um, I've also uh, written a little bit about um, the, the federal NDP and, and in particular, uh, it's sort of uh, focus on um, coastal BC. I mean, we're at the point now where a majority of the federal NDP caucus uh, represents uh, British Columbia. So I think there, there's kind of an interesting um, regional dynamic there and that more and more um, activity within the federal NDP is kind of driven by BC provincial politics. So, I mean, you, you mentioned Abby Lewis uh, running in kind of a hopeless federal riding, perhaps with an eye to positioning himself uh, to run provincially. So, I mean, we'll see, we'll see what happens uh, with that. But um, there were certainly a handful of uh, MPs who I served with who represented BC ridings federally, who um, got elected or at least sought election as uh, provincial uh, MLAs uh, in, in the province. Um, you know, so I've, I've, I've written a little bit about, about that regional dynamic and, and kind of the future of, uh, of, of the federal NDP. Uh, I've done some uh, kind of uh, consulting in, in, in the territories. Again, I guess a, a relatively nonpartisan environment, looking at the labor market, uh, looking at mineral resources and how governments can collect uh, a better return from the extraction of their non-renewable uh, resources. Um, so I guess those are some of the uh, projects and issues I've been working on. So one of the ones that grabs me in all this is, so, you know, when I was doing green politics in the 90s, people would talk to me about the monetary system and I would completely shut down uh, for two reasons. Hmm. Um, one was that I've noticed that monetary reform organizations like Palestine Solidarity Organizations and animal rights organizations are chock-a-block with anti-Semites. Uh, that even though they might have very good points to make, yep. it is unfortunate that the organizational dynamics of people who are concerned about the money supply, it pulls anti-Semites in so effectively mm -hmm. that they end up swamping sort of rational people in the monetary reform movement. And I've been back and forth with a few people about the monetary reform movement. I tend to be deeply pessimistic. And mm. so I'm, I'm sort of looking for a rebuttal of my concerns. Okay. Sure. It seems to me like following the Nixon shock and following the decision to make money and opinion about money, um, to make it this floating tradable yep. thing, dealing sure. from the gold standard or any objective reality, that, and Angela Merkel, I think, has spoken perhaps more eloquently about this than any other world leader. Uh, her sense is that as long as bond rating, uh, government bond rating is a privatized practice <laughs> conducted by ideological self-interested organizations like Standard & Poor's, our ability to actually enact monetary policy um, is severely hampered, that one would have to um, do that crazy Bolivarian Khomeinist project of Chavez and uh, Ahmadinejad, right, to de-link all these commodities from the American dollar, uh, undo the hegemony of the World Bank, things like that. Um, 
But then I find that people in grassroots monetary reform organizations, and of course I'm talking to those who are not anti-Semites, but people who are just mm -hmm. enthusiastic sure. and interested, yep. it seems like a lot of their interest and enthusiasm comes from pretending it's before 1974, that we haven't gone through all of these adjustments to how the global currency system, how the global monetary system works. Is there really a modern case for a country like Canada to pursue an independent monetary policy without being in a confrontational relationship with the World Bank and with the major lenders and bond raters? Well, excellent question. I guess one point I'd make is I think the response to the global financial crisis and more recently to the COVID pandemic uh, illustrate that central banks actually can do quite a bit. And um, we've really seen a lot of monetary policy uh, that in the past might have seemed kind of, you know, crazy or, um, you know, on the fringe or even associated with, with anti-Semitism actually become quite, uh, you know, mainstream as central banks have, have grappled uh, with these big external shocks and challenges. So I think, you know, the realm of what's possible in terms of monetary policy is much expanded. But isn't uh, that possibility and, still conditioned by the, the approval of the bond raters and the major lenders and the World Bank Bretton Woods complex of international organizations? Like it seems to me that we, of course, central banks can do anything if the World Bank and the bond raters let them. But I haven't seen a lot of defiance on the, I haven't seen a lot of conflict there. I've seen that, yes, of course, we have unfettered ability to make monetary policy as long as these global authorities agree with us. Are there examples of um, central banks staring down real credit downgrades or real disapproval uh, during these crises yet? Yeah, well, that, that is a good question. And I take your point. And I, I mean, I'm not sure that I have uh, a great answer to it. And admittedly, my focus has probably been a bit more incremental in the sense that the Bank of Canada's uh, current mandate is just completely uh, inflation targeting. Uh, right. Whereas the US Federal Reserve, the Reserve Banks of Australia and New Zealand have these dual mandates to try to limit inflation while also promoting employment. And I guess what I've advocated for is for the Bank of Canada to kind of move in that direction. Uh, but as you say that, that's kind of within the realm of what other uh, global central banks are doing. It's, it's within the realm of what the US Federal Reserve uh, does. So I, I do think that there's uh, room for improvement in Canadian monetary policy. Um, but I take your point that there are limits on it and that- Right, it, it but you're basically saying that Canada could only catch up with the rest of the Anglosphere which is sort of what us, us climate change activists say these days. It's like, we're not even asking you to do that great a job. We just don't want to be at the back of the pack. <laughs> yeah, I remember at some point uh, during the Obama administration, I think the position of every Canadian political party was basically that Canada should do what the United States was doing. And, you know, the Conservatives 
had that position kind of grudgingly and the NDP maybe had it more enthusiastically. But, um, you know, you're, you're, you're right, of course, that uh, the United States is a huge influence on Canada, you know, huge trading partner, huge uh, cultural force. Um, so I think a lot of our uh, public policy, you know, is made with reference to what's happening uh, south of the border. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, anyway, we've uh, we've managed to burn up an hour, and I'm very happy about it. Um, I'm I'm interested in um, uh, any. Uh, what are your your forward looking thoughts for next year? What um, what are things that um, people who are outside of the established order, but still committed uh, to, um, you know, a leftward social change. What should we be watching for and what kind of opportunities do you see on the horizon? Excellent question. Well, I think one thing to watch for would be, um, you know, what kind of a response there is to this emerging uh, inflation challenge. Is that taken as uh, grounds to kind of tighten up uh, monetary policy or cut back public spending, or can we find you know more progressive solutions to try to address uh, the, the rising cost of living, uh, you know, while at the same time uh, supporting uh, you know an inclusive uh, economic recovery and uh, um, you know more more egalitarian uh, policies. Uh, you know, I. I think beyond inflation, there's a real question of um, how governments, uh, you know, unwind from all this extraordinary response that there has been to, uh, you know, the COVID pandemic. I mean, I think even as social democrats or democratic socialists, we wouldn't argue that the government of Canada can just run unlimited deficits forever. But there is a real question about, um, you know, how things are are, are rebalanced. Is done by cutting social programs uh, you know could some of it be done uh, on uh, on the revenue side um, certainly you know President Biden was uh, elected with some ambitious plans to collect more revenue from the corporate sector uh, that might uh, create some opening for for Canada uh, to do the same um, so I guess those are some of the things I think we should be watching for in the new year yeah that certainly makes sense I think it's um Austerity is going to rear its head, as it always does these days, and it is probably going to be useful for us to have a response to that austerity. And certainly the polling we've been seeing coming out of Canada, um, tremendous support for wealth taxes as a category of tax, uh, going after the capital rather than the income of wealthy individuals and corporations. So I imagine um, it seems like that's gonna be the shape of a lot of the revenue conversation um, just based on, on how people seem to be reacting. So um, any caution there is, I mean, Matt Fedor at York University put forward a really interesting point where he argued against the idea that there were regressive taxes at all, mm. that um, what, did, what makes a tax regressive is how the money from it is spent, not how the money from it is collected. And so we have this focus on the very wealthy. Um, is that the right focus for us to um, start thinking about the revenue side? Yeah, well, excellent points. I mean, there, there's certainly a perspective that public expenditures are so progressive uh, that really, uh, you know, any, you know, revenue is, is progressive, even if it's raised through 
uh, a regressive tax. Despite that, I, I certainly would make the case for focusing on a progressive tax system. I would be a little cautious about trying to rely entirely on wealth taxes just simply because it involves setting up a whole new assessment system that doesn't exist yet, not to say we shouldn't set it up, uh, but it requires that. And the, the projected revenues from it are fairly limited. Now, I, I think it, it's probably still worth doing from the point of view of, of uh, having a more uh, equitable uh, society. But I actually think there's a lot more revenue to be raised on uh, the corporate tax side than on the individual uh, wealth tax side. Uh, corporate profits in Canada are enormous. I mean, they've increased uh, during the pandemic. Uh, they'll, they'll increase more if uh, commodity prices uh, are, are high. And I think there's a lot of room to um, uh, collect revenue there without really doing any appreciable damage to the economy. One of the reasons I say that is that the United States taxes its corporations on a worldwide basis and you know kind of gives them a bit of a credit for taxes they pay in other jurisdictions. Now we'll see how the corporate tax system settles under Biden, but if he significantly increases the, the US corporate tax rate and applies it on any kind of a worldwide basis, um, there might be a need for Canada to increase its corporate taxes or else have the Canadian affiliates of American corporations here, um, you know, just, just pay the tax uh, back to uh, Washington. Um, so, I, you know, that, that's one of the big openings I see. That's actually really interesting. That is not a story I've heard. And even after the Trump tax cuts, Canadian corporations are still taxed less than American corporations. This does seem to be a little bit of a fish in a barrel situation in our corporate tax situation. Yeah, I think even within this kind of uh, constraint of being competitive to the United States, there is room for Canada to collect um, you know, a fair bit more corporate tax revenue. And I, I would say um, you know, it's in the kind of um, you know, billions or tens of billions of dollars. It's quite a bit more significant than what's projected from a personal wealth tax. Well, on that note, we've somehow managed to go out on a high note. So uh, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show, taking time out of your holiday and uh, enjoying a, a rum and coke. So thanks very much. It was so great to meet you. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Best of luck with all your uh, endeavors, particularly your election campaign and cheers. All right. Thanks so much, Aaron. Talk again, I hope. I can't run no more with that lawless crowd While the killers in high places say their prayers out loud But they've summoned, they've summoned up a thundercloud They're gonna hear from me This has been a broadcast of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. If you're interested in this kind of content, do please consider joining my institute, Los Altos Institute. You can find them on the web at losaltos.ca. 
If you're interested in more of my opinions on issues of the day, consider becoming a regular reader of stuartparker.ca, the blog where I post a number of my more developed socio-political ideas. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.